people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is our country. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. You know, hardly a week goes by where someone doesn't send me an email asking about what would happen if the United States defaulted on its debt. And I I generally respond that, well, that's not going to happen. We're the world's reserve currency and go into a long explanation about it. But I thought it'd be a good topic to touch on uh, regarding the national debt. We're about $18.3, trillion in debt. Mathematically, I'm going to show you in a, in a few minutes how it's virtually impossible to pay off the national debt. But let's let, let's look at a few terms first. Let's get a little background and history on money in this country. I mean, we have 18 trillion and plus of debt, and but we don't have that much money. I mean, think about what. Our monetary policy consists of. Now, back in the old days, I know I'm dating myself, but back in the old days, every day in the Wall Street Journal, you used to see the M1, M2, and M3 numbers. And they don't publish them anymore. And there's probably a reason they don't publish them anymore, and that's due to the relation they have to the national debt. So let's take a look at those, first of all. M1. M1 um, is essentially all the physical money in the economy. So it's coins and currency, uh, demand deposits, checking accounts, uh, now accounts. Remember, now accounts, negotiable order, withdrawal accounts. M1 is the most liquid aspect to the money supply. This is all those pennies you got hoarded up in a closet in a milk can somewhere and 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 everything that's been printed, physically printed and is in circulation as well as very liquid accounts. Now, all that together, all the currency, coin, money markets, checking accounts, that kind of stuff together, three trillion dollars, three trillion. So if they confiscated all the money. Now, I'm not going to talk about confiscating money because I don't think that's going to happen. But in recent weeks, we've talked about eliminating cash, haven't we? Well, if we eliminate cash, now we've eliminated M1. So let's move up to M2. Now, M2 is a little bit broader definition of money uh, because it has more stuff in it, more things in it. In addition to everything that's in M1... M2 has what they call near money. Highly technical term there that the government puts out, near money. Now, that includes savings deposits, 
money market mutual funds and other time deposits that a little bit less liquid and they're not really suitable as exchange mediums, but they can be converted into cash in a relatively short time. So if you add M1 to M2 and then you add these other deposits in there, now we're just short of about $12 trillion. Still not enough to pay off the national debt. Now with M1, M2, then obviously the next term is M3. Now M3 includes everything that's in M2. And remember, everything in M2 includes everything in M1. But it includes large time deposits, institutional money market funds, short-term repurchase agreement, and other larger liquid assets. Now, you ready for the technical term on this? Technical term, you ready? Remember, M2 was near money. Yeah, M3, near, near money. Near, comma, near money. Now, M3, remember, includes M1 and M2, somewhere in the neighborhood of about $17 trillion. So even all of those counts don't equal the national debt. Now, interest on the debt is, eh, we're, we're, we're approaching five $600 billion. In a few years, we'll be at a trillion dollars. If you take the interest on the national debt, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, those four things, just those four things, exceed all the revenue that the federal government takes in in a year. They're considered mandatory spending, interest on the debt, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. That will surpass the total amount of federal revenue in just a few years. So that being said, very unlikely that we'll ever pay off the national debt. Now, will that cause us problems? Shit, it's causing us problems now. Shoot. We're told the deficits are under control. Now, there's a difference between a deficit and the national debt. Deficit is how much short we are on the annual budget. Now, last year, 2014, they said we was about a half a trillion dollars short, about five, six hundred billion short. But yet the national debt increased by more than a trillion dollars. So no way in the world is this under control. And it never will be. Never will be. We're about to be bombarded with presidential candidates talking about the budget and the national debt. And they'll have a 20-year plan, a 25-year plan, a 30-year plan. It, it, it's it's a waste. I can't even describe how wasteful that is to even make that statement. There's no way in the world anybody is going to obligate a future Congress to do anything that far out. Now, what would happen if the United States defaulted on its debt? Well, several things would happen. I, I've said many times, you know what, if we're going to default on debt, Let's be selective about it. Let's default on China. Let's default on Russia. Uh, Russia owns a bunch of our debt, believe it or not. 
China, over a trillion of our debt. Japan has over a trillion of our debt. Everybody's got our debt. Everybody. And it's because we're the world's reserve currency. Okay, so it's very, very stable. China uses our debt as a collateral base, if you will, for their own currency, which I find somewhat interesting because they know their currency isn't very strong or very widely accepted worldwide yet. So they back their currency with our debt. But if, if the United States defaulted on debt, they have the ability they have the ability to selectively choose what debt they default on. So they could say, they could say, we'll default on China, we'll default on, on Russia. Something. They won't, trust me on that. But they could say, well, we're going to default on Social Security debt. We're going to default on certain Treasury notes or bonds. Now, what they would do in that default is really just schedule new payment dates. They, they would just renegotiate that bond or note out further. Now, the Fed, Federal Reserve, could buy up the day, debt. They have $4.3, $4.5 trillion now on their balance sheet. So they could just digitally print money, buy up the debt, have it on their balance sheet. They don't care whether the government pays them interest or principal or not. They don't care. Doesn't matter to them. So does it matter to us? It matters to you and me because it would cause some serious inflation probably. But right now, they, the, the Federal Reserve could pick up a lot of that debt. So the Treasury has some options if they don't have the money. Okay, they can prioritize paying uh, different holders of U.S. debt. They can reschedule the payment dates for defaulted securities. They can do all kinds of, of different things, none of which will really affect us too much as long as we stay the world's reserve currency. Okay, so I don't think we're going to default. I don't think it'll get to that. But we're definitely going down a path that's uh, not the best. Coming up, talk about power grabs. EPA grabbed a bunch of power recently. I want to talk about that next. It's an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Now, back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Well, the EPA, one of my favorite government agencies, not, EPA grabbed a whole bunch of powers, trying to grab a whole bunch of power uh, in the last week or so. And it's likely President Obama will sign an executive order around this. And uh, I don't know... I don't know if the Senate or the House will overrule it. I know there are some senators and some representatives that are not real happy about this. But I don't know. It hasn't gotten much press. And that's why I wanted to bring it out to you, because it, it, 
it will directly affect the economy. You talk about debt affecting the economy. That, that surely affects the economy. This is kind of a backdoor way, a left-handed way of affecting the economy. Now, a while back, the, uh, the EPA was under the microscope, I guess, in the Senate trying to get their language changed in what they do. And if you remember, they tried to eliminate the word navigable from what they have power to regulate over. Now, the, the, the Clean Water Act of 1972 uh, gave the EPA the authority over navigable waterways. That means it has to be deep enough for a boat to drive on if boats are driven. So that, that what that did was very shallow uh, pieces of water, wetlands, uh, that kind of stuff were outside the purview of EPA. Now, this is near and dear to my heart because I have a creek on my property, splits my property right down the middle just about, and the creek starts on my property. I have some flowing wells uh, back on the hill in the woods, and uh, water just bubbles out of the ground 24-7, and it starts this creek. And as it moves, um, more tile, other waterways are added to it, and eventually it becomes navigable water. But on my property, it's just a ditch that um, you can walk through with your boots on. I mean, it's not very deep at all, maybe six, eight inches deep in the deepest spot. Well, under the new rules... The Obama administration announced that uh, navigable was no longer going to be part of it, that the EPA would have the power to regulate thousands of waterways and wetlands, even if there's no water there. If it's a dry riverbed stream, dry riverbed, they can regulate that. Now, why does the, 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 the EPA want to do this? Why do they want to do this? Well, I'll tell you. My thought is they want to do this to have more power over private property and essentially stifle capitalism. Now, think about this. They'll be able to regulate virtually anything that has ever had any physical signs of flowing water. So let's say you're a farmer and you want to build a building. Got to buy a permit. And they'll have to have an EPA approval, have to have an EPA study. And the EPA may come out and say, nah, you know, when it rains, uh, that ground stays wet for a day. Nah, we don't want you building there. We want to stifle that. On my property, small creek running through my property, it runs right. I got an orchard right beside the creek. I could see some busybody driving by when I'm spraying my trees um, and calling the EPA on me and the EPA coming out and saying, you can't spray those trees. It's too close to a waterway. So this gives the EPA power to regulate much more than the environment 
They can essentially regulate commerce. Now, this is, according to some senators, an unprecedented land grab. They'll be essentially able to sterilize land from any value. They, they can determine that your private property is no longer yours to control. Now, the sad thing is they're going to Congress. EPA is going to Congress. And the Army Corps of Engineers is with them. And they're saying that they have overwhelming support for these regulations. Well, you start looking into that overwhelming support, and it's all done over the Internet, which the EPA is not supposed to do. They're not supposed to solicit opinions. They're not supposed to have leading questions. They called this Operation Thunderclap or a Thunderclap campaign to drum up sort, uh, support for this. And they sent a message out to 1.8 million people. And they're, they're saying over a million people have responded positively. Well, one, 1.8 million people, they're going to send it to who they want to send it to, the the question, I mean, if if I ask you the question, you got any problem with having clean water for yourself, your children, and, and animals? Who's going to say, yeah, 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 I want dirty water. I want contaminated water. No. I mean, they're, they're, they're using social media in a way to drum up support that is somewhat deceptive. Nobody's against clean water. I mean, my goodness, I, I live in Ohio. We got the Great Lakes bordering us. We got the Ohio River bordering us. Uh, I'm all in favor of clean, pure water that supports wildlife. I'm not in favor of the EPA coming on my property and telling me what I can and cannot do. So this has been a big grab for them. And we're going to watch this very closely because I don't know if the Senate's got the will to back it down or not coming up first quarter readjustment gdp didn't look so good they're figuring out ways to make it look better we'll talk about that next gary raspin an economy of one Now, back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Well, we got the first, probably the first of many, adjustments to the first quarter GDP. Now, when uh, GDP, gross domestic product, is essentially a measurement of all the economic activity for a quarter, it's very important that that number be positive. And it's important because... If it's negative, if we have a contraction of the economy for two quarters in a row, we're officially in a recession. Now, President Obama, I'm sure, does not want to end his presidency in a recession. But first quarter came out, and we grew at a 0.2% growth rate, anemic is an understatement on that. 
Now, the first adjustment just happened, and now it's negative 7 tenths of 1%. That is huge. That is a huge, huge thing. Negative 7 tenths of 1% is not huge. The fact that it's negative is huge. Puts tremendous pressure on the powers that be that we have a second quarter that is positive. Now, recently, you know, all these things are what they call seasonally adjusted. I don't know if you understand seasonal adjustment. Um, I don't, and I'm a, I'm a math guy, and I've seen the algorithms, and they're complex as heck and very, very subjective, meaning they can be manipulated any way that, that the people want. Now, seasonal adjustment was originally designed as a a smoothing out of the numbers. Month to month, quarter to quarter, things are different in the economy. Okay, November, December, big months in the economy. You got Christmas shopping in there. You got a Black Friday in there. You got sales all over the place. You got end of the year inventory reduction. Big deal in the economy. January, not so much. Not so much. Don't have a holiday. You got cold weather, at least north of the Mason-Dixon line, we got cold weather. And so the idea was that we would start smoothing out these numbers over historical averages so that we get a, a reading that gives us a more level number. So we got back to school sales, we got summer, we got end of school. All of these things come into the equation to seasonally adjust. Now, I'm one of these guys that say, hey, give me the data. You know what? I understand. I'm smart enough to figure out that Christmas shopping in December is going to skew the number higher versus not shopping in January, skewing the numbers lower. You don't have to average them out. You don't need to smooth them out for me. I understand numbers will be higher at one point of the year than lower because they always are. You know, as long as I can remember, Christmas has always happened in December. They have not changed that since I've been alive. Now, maybe before, maybe it was in July or something. I don't know. But Christmas is always in December, and consequently Christmas shopping always happens before Christmas in December and late November. So give me the raw data. I'll figure it out for myself. But that's not good enough. We got to have those positive numbers. God forbid we actually acknowledge a recession in the economy because that's not politically expedient. That won't give me any votes the next time around. Well, now they're coming out with a double seasonally adjusted GDP. More fitting to the the recovery narrative that the government wants us to have. They don't want us to have negative numbers. So they're taking things in the economy, they're taking things and sectors that might be skewed one way or the other for whatever reason, and they're going to simply adjust those again. They, they're they're going to make the numbers a little better so we feel better about it. And the the, the, the equations are so complex, nobody's going to figure it out anyway. So it really doesn't matter 
We're a mathematically challenged uh, society as a rule. And what, what, what they're calling it is residual seasonality. So they're going to seasonally adjust all the numbers, and then they're going to look at what sectors, what, what areas they might want to eliminate or, or skew a little more, and they're going to residually seasonally adjust them again. Now, we'll probably see that in the next four, five, six weeks. Since first quarter went from positive to negative, they're going to start figuring out the second quarter numbers early. And if they don't knock our socks off, they're going to uh, start seasonally adjusting the first quarter again so that we don't end up in a technical, technically defined recession. Because President Obama can't have a recession. The Democrats can't have a recession going into the next election. Now, speaking of manipulating numbers, you're going to love this. This is unbelievable to me. You've heard of California, big state out west. Um, As a state, they're fairly progressive, fairly liberal state. And, uh, of course, they bought into the the Affordable Care Act, uh, better known as Obamacare, hook, line, and sinker. And uh, it's interesting. There's a couple points I want to make on that. They've got people working three shifts around the clock, um, finding abuses that include a dysfunctional computer system that costs nearly $500 million. Now, this dysfunction is canceled. Health insurance without notice when people report changes in their income. Uh, They have difficulty leaving covered California. That's the Obamacare subsidiary. And going on to Medicare, uh, they've got widespread, quote, this is a quote, widespread consumer misery. The sad part, this is so sad, it's almost funny. The sad part is the misery that these people are feeling, consumer misery, doesn't stop when the people die. Now, covered California, place some enrollees in Medi-Cal. That's the state's version of Medicaid. So the Medi-Cal is federal Medicaid program. And this program seeks repayment of many medical costs, primarily those incurred after age 55. It's called the Estate Recovery Program. And under Obamacare, it just got bigger and its reach just got broader. You could be over 55, be part of Medi-Cal, essentially the Medicaid program, never seek medical care, never seen a doctor and die, and your family, your estate, could face bills. They want a recovery of the premiums it paid to the plan. The subsidy payments that California has made to make this viable, to make it cheaper, sort of. 
The federal government requires states to recoup certain costs from the estates of some Medicaid beneficiaries after they die. California is among 10 states to seek repayment beyond the federal minimum. So according to the California Healthcare Foundation Center for Health Reporting, boy, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Your estate will be expected to pay back the value of all coverage you receive after 55. If the estate does not have sufficient assets, the state may require heirs to sign a voluntary lien on a home. Now think about this. I mean, you, it, the, the, the government is coming after your estate for premiums and benefits that it has determined were part of your health care, whether you used it or not. Maybe you had no claims, none. Absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. Now, some politicians believe this unfairly targets low-income seniors and... and uh, they're trying to put something in place to shield uh, some people from recovery. Now, I find that interesting in the sense that they don't talk about the constitutionality of this. They don't talk about the, the fairness, that word, that four-letter F word. They don't talk about that unless it's for low-income seniors. Low-income people over the age of 55. Now, I'm over age 55. I don't like being called a senior. <clears throat> but that's a personal choice of mine. But uh, can you believe that? Can you believe that? Maybe you never use your health care, step in front of a bus, and get killed, and they're going to come after your estate for benefits that they deemed you received even though you didn't use them. A couple of weeks ago, I talked to you a little bit about the Boy Scouts and uh, uh, their problems. Well, not to be outdone, the Girl Scouts get PC too. I'll talk about that next. Gary Raspin, an economy of one. Now, back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Never let it be said that the Girl Scouts can't outdo the Boy Scouts. Remember a couple weeks ago or so we talked about the Boy Scouts and they banned uh, water pistols, squirt guns as we used to call them. They banned water balloons, anything bigger than the size of a ping pong ball. And everybody's got to wear goggles and and that kind of goofy stuff. I mean, my goodness, if there's one thing that defines little boys to be little boys, it's got to be a water pistol and a water balloon, doesn't it? In fact, a side note, I don't know if you saw this or not. I saw a commercial on TV last week with people throwing water balloons at each other. Bigger than a ping pong ball, by the way. But oddly enough... Everybody was wearing safety goggles. 
Safety goggles for a water balloon. Incredible. Anyway, Girl Scouts. Girl Scouts are the latest to go further down the the uh, path of discru- uh, destruction uh, paved with political correctness. They recently announced a policy shift and will start allowing gender-confused boys in their ranks. Gender-confused. Placement of gender-confused youth is handled on a case-by-case basis with the welfare and best interests of the child and the members of the troop in question a top priority. We want that child, him, Girl Scouts as an organization that can serve him in a setting that is both emotionally and physically safe. I, 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 I'm, I'm darn near speechless. After their surrender to the liberal sexual agenda nearly two years ago that allowed for homosexual members, okay, I thought the Boy Scouts would be next to... to uh, capitulate when it comes to the gender confused but uh girl scouts beat them to it now it's absolutely incredible the the uh person in charge uh we is a quote we must deal with the world as it is not as we might wish it to be incredible to me now if i had children which i do not and I had a little girl, which I do not, and she wanted to be in Girl Scouts. I'm not sure how I would feel about little boys being in Girl Scouts when there are no little girls in Boy Scouts. And I'm not sure I'd want little girls in Boy Scouts anyway. I don't think it should be a two-way street. I don't think it should be a one-way street. It shouldn't be a street. I mean, I think it's absolutely absurd the path these organizations are going under progressive pressure. Just incredible to me that this is where we're focusing. They're killing the scouts, both the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts. They're killing them. They're killing them. And I, I I just don't understand how they can focus on one aspect of political correctness <clears throat> and really destroy their organization in the meantime. Now, speaking of Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, what is more American, not only for Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, but for the rest of us, than s'mores? I'll be honest with you. You know, I never had a s'more as a kid. I didn't have a s'more until I was adult. Now, a s'more is a graham cracker, some chocolate, and a cooked marshmallow over a a campfire squished in there with another graham cracker. That's a s'more. They're wonderful, but let's face it. Government's a bunch of killjoys, political correctness, a bunch of killjoys, the Agriculture Department, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, has come out with guidelines and a program called My Plate, quote unquote, My Plate. 
And they handed out some advice uh, recently that instead of chocolate and marshmallow, you should have you should make a s'more with strawberries and vanilla yogurt between two graham crackers. Can you believe this? We need to set expectations for our kids early, which means brainwash them, deprive them of one more thing that is a piece of Americana. You buy, I, I just can you imagine? Can you imagine sitting around a campfire with sliced up strawberries and yogurt and graham crackers? I mean. Here's a quote from the U.S. Department of Agriculture's My Plate Service. Kids will love them. Let me help you. No, they won't. No, I'll take that back. I do have a nephew that doesn't like sweets, but he's unusual in my book. Kids will love them. Parents will love them. It's an inexpensive and healthy treat. Jeez. See, and the U.S. Department has a recipe page for them. Now, once again, at what point do we stop and say, this is stupid? This is stupid. I mean, it's a s'more. Now, if you were eating them three meals a day, seven days a week, okay. Okay. But that's the parent's fault if that happens. But... uh, you know, uh, last year the USDA so celebrated National Roasted Marshmallow Day by publishing a lengthy essay on exactly how to roast your marshmallows. I mean, if 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 you can't have a gooey roasted marshmallow and melted chocolate and get it all over your fingers and the kids get it all over their face, uh, you know, you reach a point where life just isn't worth living anymore. When are the food Nazis going to leave us alone i mean really i they want to make everything boring and bland um absolutely incredible absolutely incredible so uh just thought i'd share that with you boy scouts girl scouts going down the drain and now s'mores are going away You know, it wasn't that long ago that we got rid of sparklers and everything else, Americana. So, uh, I don't know. Need to get it back. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.